This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 20th of August 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, cultural historian and author Gavin Plumley joins me in the studio to go through the papers. And Andrew Muller will tell us what he learned this week. We learned that former US vice president and possible Martian spy who didn't pay enough attention during the How to Act Like an Earthling lessons Mike Pence may actually have a sense of humour. And our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck will be here with his regular column. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. First, though, here are the headlines. UN officials will be granted permission to visit and inspect the Zaporizhia nuclear complex. Russian leader Vladimir Putin made the announcement after a call with French President Emmanuel Macron. Rafael Grossi, the Director General of the UN's nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, said he was willing to lead a visit to the plant himself. Meanwhile, there are still claims of fighting near the plant. Four civilians have reportedly been injured by Russian shelling. Torrential rains eased today in New Zealand's northern and central regions after four days of downpours forced hundreds of people from their homes, although there were 100 new evacuations overnight. The South Island city of Nelson has been the worst affected, with hundreds of homes evacuated over the week and some rendered uninhabitable. Towns in the North Island have also been cut off as floods submerged roads and homes. And Chilean legislators will begin random drug testing in the next few days after a proposal making it compulsory was approved last month in an effort to raise the standards of transparency in parliamentary work. In a related story, Finland's Prime Minister has said she's taken a drug test after new footage emerged showing the leader dancing with a Finnish pop star. She denies ever taking drugs and says the results of the test will be available next week. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Right, well, let's dive straight into the newspapers because I am joined in the studio by Gavin Plumley. He's a leading cultural historian, he's a writer, he's a broadcaster. His specialities include Central European music, art and culture during the 19th and 20th centuries. How lovely to have you with us. It's very lovely to be here with you. Um, Gavin, so much that I want to ask you, and luckily I'm going to get the the chance a little bit later because, in fact, you're a forthcoming guest on our Meet the Writers programme in which you'll be talking about your book. But just tell us a little bit about it first. It's called A Home for All Seasons. It's been out for a couple of months now. Um, We launched it at Hay, um, which is very exciting. Uh, It is the story of my home. I live in Herefordshire most of the time and... When we moved there four years ago, an insurance salesman asked me how old the house was in order that if it burned down, that we'd get the money back, or rather my mortgage company would get the money back. And at that moment, I had to go and find out how old it was. And in rural Herefordshire, uh, documents dating back 450 years aren't as immediately acquired (laughs) as you might hope. So it's a bit of a sort of 
well, a series of rabbit holes to find out the answer to that question and indeed many other questions that come out of it. But of course, you're well known across, as I said, a broad sphere of things. I mean, a huge expert on all sorts of things like Bauhaus or Klimt or, I mean, it, it goes on and on. Well, yeah, I, I, I suppose I love that idea of, um, I'm not calling myself one, but the ambition to be a Renaissance man, to try and kind of see the connections right across the world and see what's going on here, how it relates to things that are going on in New Zealand. You know, hearing the news just now, I was there four years ago lecturing in Nelson. I know exactly where they are. In fact, I was lecturing about the Bauhaus in Nelson. So, And to see the architecture out there and how that reflects um, trends uh, here and indeed how our uh, trends reflect uh, trends from around the world. So it's, uh, that's, that's kind of what fires me, really. So... Yeah, I dip into a lot of different things. Mm. Let's turn our attention to what's going on uh, here in, in Britain. Uh, but but again, as you say, following on from what you say, how that reflects the broader picture. So, of course, we're right in the middle of a, a leadership, a Tory leadership contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Uh, and weighing in on this is Michael Gove, uh, who, of course, has been in government for the past 12 years. He's been a, a senior politician. Uh, and he's just come out with some extraordinary remarks. Yeah, he has. Um, I mean, Michael Gove is uh, a great player um, when it comes to the media. He knows exactly what he's doing. So at nine o'clock last night, gave um, his comments to The Times, or rather, I mean, they'd be clearly been quite well engineered before they went into The Times last night um, online, nine o'clock, and obviously in the papers today, about the fact that he is not going to get on the Liz Truss bandwagon. Um, he is uh, obviously going to stick instead to supporting his colleague in Cabinet, uh, Rishi Sunak. And he does it in a very interesting way, I think. Um, it's You can pick holes in so many of uh, Michael Gove's arguments, but it, the way it opens, I think, really does get to the kernel of what a lot of us are going to be facing, are facing right now, and are going to be facing over the next few months, which is the energy crisis. And he returns to his roots. He returns to Aberdeen and Michael Gove can uh, wear his roots as lightly or as heavily as he wants on his sleeve as the opportunity demands. And here at the top of his comment uh, for today's um, Times in London is uh, a very kind of weepy and justifiably weepy um, approach to the Royal Crown Chinese restaurant on the harbour side in Aberdeen where its proprietor, Martin Tang, is looking at a rather dismal winter ahead. And these are reports that are repeated elsewhere in the papers. The Guardian is also focusing on how small businesses are going to be able to cope uh, this winter with rising energy costs. And indeed, it's a, it's a global issue. Joe Biden this week has been wrestling with it and has wrestled well with it, with the Inflation Reduction Act. The New York Times is leading on that and how... Inflation can be controlled through a green agenda by reducing emissions. And yet, in the South China Morning Post, we read about how the Sichuan province, taking a huge amount of its power from hydroelectric plants, cannot do so at the moment because the drought that we've also been experiencing in Britain, they've been experiencing appallingly in China, hugely high temperatures, and the factories have had to close. Major factories, Tesla, all sorts of other places. And that's widely reported too. So, yes, it's a very petty kind of uh, beauty contest, or not particularly beautiful beauty contest, mm. between Sunak and Truss. 
But actually what they're going to have to deal with, as Gove says, when the next Prime Minister takes office in a few weeks' time, there will be millions of our fellow citizens under unprecedented pressure. And I just wish, therefore, that Michael Gove hadn't been at the vanguard of a government that separated itself and separated the nation from other nations so that we might look to Joe Biden, we might look to other nations around the world, also our immediate neighbours, and come up with a global solution for this appalling energy crisis and not only the influence it will have over industry, but also on the individual. Mm. And I mean, but it's almost as if Gove and Truss and Sunak hadn't been governing for the last 12 years. The way they say we're going to fix it, you broke it. <laughs> yeah, completely. And, you know, and the fact not only did they break it, but they were right in the centre of power and a hugely centralised power as well. Boris Johnson's premiership was nothing if it wasn't centred on number 10. And Gove was right in the middle of it. I mean, he does this rather... Um, kind of lavender prose moment about how wonderful Boris was, just to make sure that we don't really think he was the villain of the piece back in July. But that stuff doesn't convince me at all. It's more convincing is this sort of slight scintilla, I suppose, of social democracy that is uh, emerging from this prose. But, you know... I think we've been here before and I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. <laughs> uh, it's worth quoting, I think, our mutual friend uh, Matthew Paris, who's writing about Liz Truss in his column today. Uh, and it's just this <laughs> one sentence. Liz Truss is a planet-sized mass of overconfidence and ambition teetering upon a pinhead of a political brain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. And it's also, Michael Gove says, talks about how eloquent she's been. And I was there going, when? When has she been eloquent? I I saw a question put to her in Belfast this week and the stuttering, robotic way that she came back with just sound bites about, you know, getting Brexit done and all of that kind of yada, yada, yada. And you're just there going, this is not going to cut. This winter is going to be an absolute disaster, both here and abroad. Mm. And... We need to grow up now. Mm. And I mean, just looking at the situation, it's it's likely that Tory members, who are the only people who get to vote between Truss and Sunak, will vote for Truss. However, many people are saying Sunak is the only person that might be able to beat Labour in the next election. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think the next election is absolutely the key thing here. I think if Liz Truss gets in, we're not very far away from it. She has vastly overpromised. She doesn't have what her supposed lodestar Maggie Thatcher had in her back pocket, which was the privatisation of national industries and utilities, that's gone. There is no money tree. They are broke. We have terrific debt to service, interest rates rising. You know, you can't keep promising without diving into the Treasury and working out how on earth are you going to fund it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, Gavin, I know that one thing that you and I have in common is spaniels. <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> so you have a sprocker. I have a sprocker and a working cocker. They, they, they are our boys, yeah. And I have a springer. Uh, and our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, has, I'm never quite sure, some sort of terry, a very, very handsome dog. She's called Macy. And she's just been on holiday. <laughs> she's, she's been driven to Spain and back. Uh, and uh, interested listeners, can follow her journey on Instagram or they can also read Andrew Tuck's column which is in today's Monocle Minute and luckily here's his audio version and we're back if you've been following my journey for the past two weeks you'll be delighted to know that the return drive from Mallorca to London 
with ferry and channel tunnel in the mix, of course, has been completed. I agree that, as adventures go, it's not quite Amundsen South Pole territory, but not taking a plane really did make it, well, feel special. And despite me actually driving sometimes, no divorce papers have been filed. Although, when I clipped the curb leaving the service station just past Narbonne, there was a moment when all bets were off. And on that, service stations, not whether I should have got the ejector seat added when ordering the car, thank you to Michelle Pierre, who emailed detailed and very welcome instructions on which services to stop at in France. His recommendation was on only using Total stations. We tried following his advice, but honestly, on a Saturday in August, when half of France seems to be going or returning from beach, jeet, camping site, even Total stops look more like Glastonbury Festival on the final day. Let's move on. Petri Butsov, our Helsinki correspondent, was in town this week and came to spend a day working out of Midori House. At lunchtime, me, Josh, our editor, and Marcus Hippie, Monocle 24 host and producer, and a Finn too, took Petri to lunch. Now, all three of these gentlemen are people of scale, tall, broad-shouldered. You'd want them on your rugby squad, perhaps less so in your interpretive dance troupe. Meanwhile, with my diminutive height, I'd be lucky to get a job as club mascot. When we arrived, I said hello to the maitre d', who scanned my guess and said to me, I think that we'll be needing a bigger table today, sir. Now, some people might have taken offence, but personally, I thought that one, he had made a very wise call, and two, this was highly amusing. Although, if he had brought me a booster seat, I admit that perhaps my glee would have been diminished. On the issue of taking offence, We've also had James Chambers, our Asia editor who normally is based in Hong Kong, in the office all week. It's his first trip to the UK since Covid began and he's brought his wife and lockdown son with him to meet his parents in Wales. In Europe, we still forget how parts of Asia are still gripped by draconian Covid restrictions, which are also politically expedient in some cases. Anyway, all that unbroken time in Hong Kong has had an impact on James. Firstly, he's invested in a lot of technical fibre clothing, it seems. He sounded like a giant crisp bag as he wandered around the office. Secondly, he's gone a bit HK on video phone calls at top pitch. So James was affronted this week when he was on a call in the street saying goodnight to his son and a woman crossed the road and scolded him, you're a very rude man. Well, we think that she was objecting to the call it may have been his crunching attire that was ruining her peaceful stroll. We're working on our business annual, The Entrepreneurs. One of the stories we're researching is about people who run two very different businesses at the same time. The builder, who is also a biscuit baron kind of vibe. These are people, not just the side hustle, but the kind of brain that lets them do two very different things, or perhaps means that they need to do two very different things. And this week, a potential writer came to see me who made me think even more about whether it's best to do one thing well or do, well, lots of things well. He's run branding agencies, been the MD, but now, just shy of 50, he's spending part of the week working freelance on big projects that he likes, 
a day a week volunteering for a celebrated gardener, ahead of him starting a gardening course, and on Saturdays he works as a shop assistant in a shop connected to gardening, I might add. He used a term that I've never heard. He said that he wanted to make his work life plural. I think that's an accurate description of what many people are wondering, edging around. Not any unwillingness to work hard, far from it, just a sense that perhaps they want to use all of their skills and passions to be their very best. And on getting out into the world, even at Monocle we still have not been able to connect in the ways that we used to. But finally, I'm returning to the US. I completed my Esther form this week and saw, for the first time, the section where you can list all of your social media accounts. It's optional, but for how long? Although, if it gets me some more likes, my pictures and my dog. Thank you very much to Andrew. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and with me in the studio is the leading cultural historian, Gavin Plumley. Uh, Gavin, we've just been uh, hearing Andrew talking about social media and, of course, that's one of the ways in which uh, hatred is spread and, of course, uh, the appalling events with Salman Rushdie just over a week ago uh, where the 33-year-old uh, fatwa finally uh, took its toll. He was attacked, he was stabbed on, on stage He's in hospital recovering now. But, of course, there's been an outpouring of uh, of reaction to this. Yeah, I mean, you can't uh, switch on Twitter, for instance, at the moment without having another author, another author's organisation uh, commenting on it. And, indeed, lots of people doing laudable things like going out and buying their first copy of Midnight's Children or Harun and the Sea of Stories and pouring into this amazing man's work. And that is in itself laudable. But I think... What we now see over a week on um, is some slightly more nuanced and intelligent debate about this. There's no nuance to be found, of course, in the act of stabbing a man. You know, outright condemnation, of course, for that. But two very interesting essays, um, uh, uh, Collins today, Lionel Shriver in uh, The Spectator and Simon Sharma in The Financial Times. Now, of course, you can take your pick out of those two. Lionel Shriver is, um, well, let's put it, she's strong meat. Um, And um, she takes a pretty robust um, approach to it in her piece, which is called The Shameful Truth, Terrorism Works. And the subtitle there, I'm not quite so sure about, and describes the response as a gleaming vanilla icing slathered on a mud pie, the gleaming, gleaming vanilla icing being the, the righteous indignation of, of various authors who feel that this is, you know, obviously a major debate about freedom of expression, freedom of speech. But I think where Lionel Shriver really gets into the nitty-gritty, the sort of mud pie beneath that, is her delineation of what is free speech and within free speech is there in fact room for hate speech or is some part of free speech hate speech and I think she really does kind of pin her colours to the mast and it's something that I found myself rather surprised that I was agreeing with her that if we are totally permissive if we have a society in which we do defend free speech and there are Therefore, the opportunities which may have dried up now for works like the Satanic Verses to be published. There are also members of society who will view what you say as hate speech. And that is, it's a very, very difficult thing to define. And she goes into, um, well, a kind of knotty approach to it. But I think one of the other things she really pins 
is the online safety safety bill that's coming through the kind of thing that would control Twitter, would control Instagram and our ability to say what we want. Um, she absolutely kind of goes a bit um, uh, binary, I think, on the whole approach. And you can be binary when you're dealing with religious fundamentalists, when you're dealing with a Christian might in America, when you're dealing with jihadists and those who will respond to a 33-year-old fatwa. Um, but I think what she misses is that this is not the only debate we're having at the moment about freedom of expression. And when it comes to something like the trans issue, the trans debate, as it's called, and the fact that we're even having a debate about it seems ridiculous, that you can't be so binary about it. There are shades of grey. And I suppose, for me, reading about the Society of Authors this week and authors like Joanne Harris and J.K. Rowling and you know massive names like that as well, duking it out... Um, in the Twitter sphere, um, all of which is feeding into our press this weekend. Mm. I, th- I kind of think, can we be so binary? I wonder, though, I mean, having read all these tweets from Joanne Harris, who is uh, uh, the, the uh, I think she's chair of the Society of Authors, yep. uh, and uh, reading all of her tweets, looking at what J.K. Rowling has said, there has actually been no... Uh, uh, Harris has not attacked Rowling in any way, Rowling has not fought, but this is, it would seem to me, a manufactured culture war uh, that, that is happening, driven by other forces, that the two central people here are not actually attacking each other. No, they're not. At, that's absolutely true. And I think one of the things about the JK Rowling issue, about her comments on trans women and the segregation of those, uh, those people... Um, <sighs> has unfortunately played into a massive storm that, and likewise Joanne Harris, I think she was slightly flippant in the way that her questionnaire on Twitter was placed last week. But, you know, we're allowed to be flippant. All of the stuff in the Lionel Shriver piece and indeed Simon Sharma's very intelligent, historically contextual essay in um, the FT um, this weekend really are saying that we have the right to be rude effectively And, you know, we've already had someone having their show cancelled in Edinburgh this month because that was too rude. At the heart of a democracy, we have to be able to say what we want. And for our stuff not to just be taken out of context all the time, I think that is absolutely true. Um, I think the person who really does get to it is Sharma because he says, you know, that we have to understand where we've come from. You know, look back to the reign of terror, look back to German nationalism, look back to Heinrich Heine and place Salman Rushdie's comments within that. Um, and that kind of nuance is is a necessity when dealing with these things, though I would encourage readers to go to the Lionel Schreiber piece because it will generate your own thoughts on it. And they won't be getting on a bandwagon and slagging someone off on Twitter. It's much more subtle than that. Mm. Uh, there's one line from it which I really love, and I think it's something that, that authors should, should or, or people, even readers should think about. She said, uh, she uh, she says she went to a, 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 a literary festival, and uh, the, the question was, uh, should write, white writers feel free to craft non-white characters? Uh, and then somebody said, well, is this really a question of respect? She said, certainly not. She said she was under no obligation to respect her own characters, whom she often subjects to derision. Good Lord, she said, I I can, click, I can gleefully kill my characters and smite them with all manner of humiliations beforehand. And that's fiction, isn't it? It is completely, it is fiction, and so was the satanic verses. And I think one of the other things that I would just sort of tie up this 
weird um, conflab um, and uh, and also the appalling situation that you know a great writer is in at the moment is this is not just about writers. This has become a navel-gazing exercise for authors around the world. You know, who who is attacking us as a group? Well, actually, freedom of expression doesn't stop at the written page. Everyone around society, regardless of their role, has freedom of expression. Just because you're wielding a pen or, moreover, a, a, a laptop um, sitting in a coffee shop doesn't mean that you have a greater right to it either. We have to allow that to spread through society. And sometimes that will give us answers that we really don't want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I suppose I come back once again to my bottom line. Writing is just making shit up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of which, uh, let's go to Andrew Muller, who says uh, at some point in this piece that it's not actually recorded under oath. He may have made a couple of things up. We learned this week that everything in the United Kingdom is basically fine, that there are no real problems at all, no drought or double-digit inflation or skyrocketing energy bills or general cost-of-living crisis or war at barely one remove with Russia or anything like that. And if there is, it's no big deal. We learned this by judging from the behaviour of the UK's clearly serenely unconcerned Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, apparently insufficiently refreshed by one holiday in Slovenia... Come on, let's have some Balkan folk music, something accordion-y. Christ alive, what a din. Embarked on another holiday, this one in Greece. seamless. We learned other things from Johnson's gallivanting. We learned that the British media and the public it serves have lost none of their blind, furious, purple-templed, vein-throbbing rage at the thought of their elected representatives enjoying life even slightly, which is why Prime Ministers are so very often obliged to spend such time off as they get, pretending to be absolutely overjoyed that they're freezing half to death on a rain-swept Cornish promontory and not sloshing back an agreeable Monte Pucciano on the sun-splashed balcony of a Tuscan villa. But we learned, or rather conceded, that on this occasion the grimly grudge-toting denizens of these angry islands do have half a point, specifically that Boris Johnson could probably bestir himself to do some actual governing right now, as if we're being honest, things aren't going brilliantly, plus his schedule is shortly to free up dramatically by dint of him not being Prime Minister anymore, unless one assumes that he intends to dedicate himself with tireless up-all-hours diligence to the concerns of the voters of his constituency of Uxbridge and South Ryslip. <coughs> if Johnson happens to be listening, it's in West London. We learned, meanwhile, that Johnson's increasingly inevitable successor, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, does not think much better of Britain's people than Britain's people tend to of their politicians. We learned from the leak of a recording from circa 2019 that Truss believes her fellow citizens to be, and we paraphrase somewhat for clarity, a woebegone sack of shiftless bone-idle layabouts who would, by and large, recoil from an offer of generously paid work as a mattress tester. This has been a historical fact for decades. Yeah. Essentially, it's partly a sort of mindset and attitude thing. Yeah, it's working culture, basically. 
But if we have learned anything about Liz Truss, Liberal Democrat turned Conservative, Republican turned Monarchist, Remainer turned Brexiter, person who once pronounced it scone but now pronounces it scone, person who once put the cream on the scone before the jam but now puts the jam on the scone before the cream. What? I'm not sure. Yeah, what? Not what? Uh, I don't know that one. No, no. Are sure? these monologues aren't delivered under oath. We have also learned that Truss is a politician of commendably flexible ideological underpinnings and were therefore rather anticipating from her a screeching handbrake turn into ecstatic raptures at the positively Stakhanovite heroics of the British worker. We learned that we were to be disappointed. You suggested in that leak recording that British workers weren't working hard enough. Do you believe that? Well, what I believe is that we need more skills in our country, we need more capital investment in our country, we need more opportunity in our country. And that our, is our what, British workers working That is now. what I would deliver as Prime Minister. Look, we need to help more people get into work. We have a number of people across the country who are currently economically inactive. One more chance, do you think British people don't work hard enough? I've already been clear that what I want to see is more opportunity across this country. Anyway. Contemplating the Atlantic's other shore in expectation of bleak comic relief, we learned that former US Vice President and possible Martian spy who didn't pay enough attention during the How to Act Like an Earthling lessons Mike Pence may actually have a sense of humour. Ex-Veep Pence floated the richly amusing possibility that he might at some point bowl along to the House Committee investigating the events of January 6th, 2021, during which his former boss, President Benito Cartman, neglected to try terrifically hard not to get him lynched. We learned that, however, that Vice President Pence, or Lieutenant Colonel Zorg of the Mars Intelligence Agency, whichever, has also paid somewhat lackadaisical attention to American history. And let's have a sound effect of a blackboard eraser being angrily flung at a diffident student by an enraged tutor. Ah, memories. For we learned when we checked that loads of, well, several current or former presidents and vice presidents have testified on Capitol Hill, including Presidents Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, Gerald Ford, Teddy Roosevelt and William Taft, and Vice President Shiloh Colfax. So it would not be unprecedented. It would not even be unvice precedented. But we learned that Pence, or Zorg, whoever, had better be quick, for we learned that Congresswoman Liz Cheney, daughter herself of a previous Republican vice president, will not be around to chair the January 6th committee much longer, having lost the Wyoming Republican primary ahead of November's midterms to some Trumpist headbanger, specifically this one. Joe Biden is the largest or the most destructive human trafficker in our history. 
yes, we played cuckoo noises behind that. We are that childish. So we learned that we have lived long enough to see not only Liz Cheney, who would have been generally regarded not so long ago as a fire-breathing paleo-conservative, resemble by comparison to her party at large a bastion of principle and voice of reason. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear, but it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. But also her dad. In our nation's 246-year history, there has never been an individual who is a greater threat to our republic than Donald Trump. He tried to steal the last election using lies and violence to keep himself in power after the voters had rejected him. He is a coward. A real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. He lost his election, and he lost big. I know it, he knows it, and deep down, I think most Republicans know it. Welcome to the resistance, Mr. Vice President. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much to Andrew. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and with me in the studio is cultural historian Gavin Plumley. Gavin, he was talking there and quoting indeed uh, uh, US politicians and uh, uh, Donald Trump is obviously never very far from the news agenda. There's a new book out about him. It's called Breaking History and it's written by Jared Kushner, who of course is Trump's uh, son-in-law. Uh, he was also a former White House senior advisor. Now the book has been reviewed in the New York Times uh, by Dwight Garner. He says, Breaking history is, an earnest, is earnest and soulless. Kushner looks like a mannequin and he writes like one, and peculiarly select, a peculiarly selective appraisal of Donald J. Trump's term in office. The book is like a tour of a once majestic 18th century wooden house, now burned to its foundations, that focuses solely on and rejoices in what's left amid the ashes, the two singed bathtubs, the gravel driveway and the mailbox. Reading this book, this is the killer, reading this book reminded me of watching a cat lick a dog's eye goo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crikey, I hope nothing like that ever comes near a review of one of my books. I love how it's published by Broadside Books as well. That sort of seems quite fitting. Yeah, um, I, do, I, mean, I wonder if people will, will but I mean, they probably will buy it out of curiosity. And, and I mean, for an author, that's really all that matters. Are you getting the, the revenue? Yeah, literary ambulance chases only. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and speaking of which, of course, it's been so hard for Donald Trump to, to find a lawyer, it's been reported. I mean, he's tried every top lawyer. They're all turning him down. Well, he doesn't have particularly good form in choosing them in the past either. Um, uh, hello, Mr Giuliani, <laughs> yes. turning up at completely the wrong address. And, uh, oh, dear. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, the problem is, you know, history here is playing out simultaneously as tragedy and farce mm -hmm. because it is so dangerous and yet so amusing. But, you know, who are we to talk? We yeah. have a particularly farcical situation also playing out here. Absolutely. Well, let's let's marry those ideas uh, of, of uh, legal problems and literature, and indeed marriage, 
And look to the travails of the footballer Ryan Giggs. Now, we're not particularly interested in football on this particular programme and I don't think the ins and outs of the trials and trial needs to particularly bother us. But Ryan Giggs is a very well-known footballer. He's been accused, I think, of, of abusing women. Is that correct? Something like that. Yeah, he, he, he's denied headbutting his girlfriend. Right. Um, I mean, there is, a, I think there is a sort of history or he's been accused of a history of um, abusive and coercive behaviour. But what's popped out of the trial in um, uh, Manchester uh, is, is tr- truly uh, one of the most um, glorious, um, inadvertently glorious uh, pieces of poetry um, I've, I think I've ever read. Um, and, and you know what? It would be so wonderful if you would give it to us in your best Gavin Plumley voice. My darling Kate, unequivocally our love was fate. I fell in love with you at first sight. I remember cos I was high as a kite. Those beautiful eyes made me shiver. And at that point, we seem to lose the rhyme scheme, but he comes back to it. I'm not going to lie, I think of you, I dream of you. Can't help thinking pulling you was my greatest ever coup, misspelled. That stomach, those abs, those pictures you send so I can keep tabs. You make me feel funny down there, especially when you're there and you look up and stare. I'm beginning to think you are always right. That's okay. it will keep us tight. I'm going to end by saying you are my love, my friend, my soul. And most of all, you believe in me, which makes me hard as a totem pole. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. This was, of course, a producer's evidence in court that he did love her. Um, (laughs) I've almost got nothing to say to that. I could counter it with a very bad rhyme, actually. Well, I, well, please do, because I, I'm absolutely lost for words, which, which is rare for me. <laughs> well, it moves fast, the news agenda. So how long will we remember, end of August, perhaps September, how Ryan Giggs once described his member? <laughs> that's Bravo. all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Gavin Plumley, thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and this programme will return at the same time next week. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listener.